Bill has put, passed around bookmarkers. We did that for a reason. We want you to commit, each and every person, we want you to commit to pray for five people. Now, each of us know at least five people that are unsaved. And on this little bookmarker that Bill gave you, we want you to write their name down. We want you to invite them. And we want you to pray for them. And if they need a ride to come to the Harvest America thing, give them a ride. It's a commitment. This is a big outreach. We want God's kingdom to increase. We want people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is a big push. It's really our first big evangelical push as a fellowship. And, uh, and so, we look for the Lord to do great things. And we look for Him to save many. So, be praying for those on your bookmarkers. This morning we're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. We have seen the fall of Adam and Eve. We've seen that they have chose sin. And sin has brought forth a struggle between the sexes. There is now contention between a husband and wife. Now, a couple, they have to struggle for harmony in the home. You have to strive, you have to work at communicating to be that one as God has intended. Whereas before the curse, before sin entered into the human race, harmony was the norm. There was no working at getting along. There was harmony there. Man not only lived in a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, with perfect fellowship with God, but there was harmony there. But sin entered and it caused this beautiful, harmonious relationship between Adam and Eve to become edgy. There's now a little taint to it. Um, the man and woman now become kind of self-preserving, self-absorbed. And the true, loving, willful submission by Eve to Adam is not so natural anymore. It is not so easy. It is not so flowing. And Adam's leadership in the family is now, it's tainted. And his first concerns are perhaps for himself. And his leadership in the family, it sort of smacks of tyranny. Sin has brought forth diminished self-esteem. And, you know, that's the big thing today, you know, uh, self-esteem and all this. And plus it's brought a loss of self-confidence. It also brought about mistrust between husband and wife. And with sin, and that sin being multiplied down through the ages, generation after generation, we have become extremely good at self-preserving. And we've also become less loving and trusting of one another.
Today, to love a husband or wife requires effort. It requires maintenance. To, com- to communicate, you have to kind of work at it. You've got to make sure you're doing it in a, in a relationship. The Scriptures advise us time and time again, love one another. Why would Scripture advise us to do that? Because our natural tendency is not to love one another. You see, sin has scarred us. It has scarred us emotionally and physically. And the loving of one another requires a concentrated effort from each of us. In fact, we use terms like, I have grown to love him or her. And there's a myth out there. The myth is, I fell in love with him or her at first sight. And that is a myth. You may have fallen in desire, but you did not fall in love. And before I dig myself a deeper hole, <laughs> let's read Genesis three seventeen through 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Because you have sinned, Adam, the ground, the support system for all of humanity, is cursed. All of your descendants... Generation after generation will toil to feed or make a living for their family because of the curse. You know, it's only been within the last hundred years that our world has changed so tremendously. We have gone through what they call the Industrial Revolution. My parents, perhaps your grandparents, have experienced a great change in lifestyles. Me. I know it's hard to imagine me as a young boy, but I was young once. I remember my mom would give me a little fruit jar full of water and she'd say, go take your dad a drink of water. And I would go out into the field and he would be plowing with a mule. And he would be plowing for us a garden. Not a garden for profit, but a garden of necessity. We not only had to feed ourselves from the garden, but we had one mule that my dad was plowing with. We had one pig, one goat for milk, and chickens for eggs. And so you had to produce this food for yourselves and your animals. And I'm only one generation removed from eating off of the land or earning a living toiling the ground by the sweat of my brow. And that is not even completely true in my life. You see, for several years, 
back when we lived in the Central Valley, the Big Valley in California, I understood the hardships of toiling and sweating of the brow to grow something to eat. I was a tree farmer for about seven years in California. I'll explain what a tree farmer is in a moment. I enjoyed, and I did enjoy farming. It was a simplistic life. Having been in business for myself for about 12 years, it was good to get away from employees. No offense to anyone, but hey, I was happy to get away from that. But farming, for me, was not like it was for my dad. I had machinery. I had tractors. And I had other farming equipment that made life easy. And we had chemicals for weed killing. We had chemicals for fertilizer and chemicals to kill bad bugs. Chemicals do make life easier on the farm. And that's not very green, is it? But it's very true. <laughs> chemicals are good, especially if you farm. But our world has gone through a major change. And that major change is when one person can grow more than the food that he consumes. Today we're far removed from the sweating of the brow to eat bread. Today we get a taste of that sweating of the brow when we perhaps plant a garden and you try to keep it weed free, you sweat, especially in this weather we're having. And it's a constant struggle to get those good plants to grow and the thorns and thistles not to grow, which they tend to grow so abundantly. But the few years out in California when I was a tree farmer, now, I didn't farm trees, I farmed the product that comes off of trees, almonds, walnuts, and peaches. And we didn't call them almonds, we called them almonds. That's how you knew if he was an almond farmer. He didn't call it an almond. He called it an almond. <laughs> but anyway, I got up and close and personal what was required to make a living from the ground. Lori and I, we had 66 acres, all of trees. That's not a lot of acreage, but at about 100 trees per acre, that's a lot of trees. That's a lot of trees to prune, and you had to prune them each year. To fertilize them, you had to irrigate them, and you had to harvest them each and every year. The secret to farming for me was do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. Because if you procrastinate in farming, you get behind and never catch up. Now, let me explain a little bit about the sweat of the brow. In the Central Valley, the big valley in California, it doesn't rain from about April to October. Very strange to ever have a thunderstorm come through. In fact, you just don't. And it doesn't rain for about six months. Therefore, the trees become loaded with dirt and dust. And nuts don't just fall off that tree when you want them to. So we had what we call shakers. 
And it was a big crab-like arm thing that would reach out and it would shake or vibrate the tree and everything in that tree fell to the ground, including the nuts, the dirt, broken limbs, and dust, unbelievable. There would always be a cloud of dust wherever you shook a tree. And mid-September to October, and that was harvest time, and they're very hot months there in California in the Central Valley, and it was hot, dirty work. So when you went out, and you went out at daybreak every day during harvest, you would completely cover yourself. You would have a long sleeve. You would have a dust mask on. You would have goggles on, and you for sure had a hat on. Long sleeves, and there you are working in temperatures always above 90, closer to 100 degrees, and you would sweat, and you would actually get muddy from sweating from all the dirt that was on you. There was times I would come in from the orchard and before I would go into the house, I would take a hose and just hose myself down. And then I'd strip and go in and take a shower. <laughs> and so I learned up close and personal what it was like to sweat to grow something from the ground. That sweating of the brow became a real thing, especially during harvest. Now today, I have life easy. I'm a cattleman. Now, I raise beef for my own consumption, and I sell a little freezer beef. And I do it for fun, because I know what it's like to farm for a living. I do not depend on my cows for a living. Thank you, Lord. I have somebody else cut my hay. I have somebody else slaughter my beef. And I rent a bull to impregnate my heifers. So, hey, life is pretty easy. All I have to do is make sure my fences are up and I have to grill hamburgers. And that's not so bad. Life is not bad. But if I had to make my living raising cows or cattle, it would be a completely different picture. But the curse is there upon the ground for us to grow our food and it's still there worldwide. You may or may not realize that over half of our nation right now is in a severe drought. We're in a 50-year drought. That's a lot of dry, parched ground out there. And that will translate into higher food prices shortly. Not today, but it'll, probably, it'll show up before next year, I guarantee you. Food prices are going to jump. Therefore... What you earn and what you pay for food is going to increase. You will pay more for food in the near future. That is part of the curse upon the ground. And drought? Well, primarily in the Old Testament, drought was God's way of correcting or getting a nation's attention. And I hope America wakes up and turns back to our Lord. Even Elijah, Elijah the prophet, the primary prophet, he is known for saying, hey, it's not going to rain for a while. And it didn't rain for a while. And then you have the same prophet who 
Elijah and he prays for rain and it rains. So you have this drought thing that's kind of out there. This year, in some of the Midwest corn states, churches have been coming together in communities and praying for rain. About a month ago, it was pretty pretty dry here. And many farmers in our area were praying for rain. And I was one of them. I was praying for rain. The drought that we just came through is a vivid reminder of the curse that can be upon the ground and for us to make a living to grow our food from the ground. Enough about farming. Verse 20. We have Adam, and he names his wife, and he names her Eve. Up until this verse, Eve has been known as woman, female, comparable helper, a wife. But now she's given a name, and Eve means mother of all mankind. What a name. And then you have mankind that's not used until chapter 5. So Adam's wife became known as Eve Mankind. That was her name. Well, maybe not. But anyway. What a peculiar thing, though. Adam gives Eve her name, Mother of Mankind, before she ever has a child before she's ever even pregnant, he names her mother of mankind. That is done. Adam is taking a step of faith and he's naming his wife mother of mankind. And then we have God in his mercy and his grace and he makes tunics for Adam and Eve. He makes clothing for them from animal skins. To do this now, an animal has to die. In Hebrews, we get a clue as to why an animal must die. For Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It's God-ordained. It's His way. It's His thing. And thus we have, when God sheds the blood of an animal and makes tunics for Adam and Eve, we have the second religion of the world being instituted by God. And you might say, well, what was the first religion instituted? Glad you asked that. The first religion of the world was Adam and Eve trying to do good works, trying to cover their sin by sowing fig leaves together. The second religion is God reaching down to man and providing that covering. God covers their guilt. God sacrifices an animal to do this, to make clothing or tunics for Adam and Eve. Then later, Jesus, of course, will go to the cross, shed his blood for all of mankind. But the animal sacrifice for Adam and Eve and thousands upon thousands 
of animals that had to be sacrificed down through the ages simply to cover man's sin. In Jesus' day, there lived a historian named Josephus. At one of the Passovers at that time, he counted 250,000 sheep being slaughtered during Passover. That is a lot of animals that had to die to cover men's sins. Up until when Jesus went to the cross, the supreme sacrifice of our Lord, the only way to rid the guilt or even cover the guilt was for an animal to die. Adam and Eve's sins and all sins before Christ were covered by the slaughtering of animals. So the cross comes. Jesus goes to the cross. And not only now are our sins covered by the blood of Jesus, but Jesus' blood did something that no animal's blood could ever do, and that removes the sin. Not just covers it, it removes it. And it's never to be remembered again. That is a big difference. For you see, God chooses not to remember our sins. Isaiah 1.18, Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And in that, our God is pointing towards the cross of Jesus. The shall be's in that verse, there shall be white as snow and so forth, were a future look at the cross. Today, you and I, as believers, we can say my sins are removed, they're white as snow, and we do not have to carry the guilt of sin. As a Christian, we should be the most well-balanced people in all the world. We do not have the burden of guilt from our sins to carry around. We are guilt-free. That is a great, great relief. A forgiven person doesn't have to carry that load of sin. And here's the thing. Never allow anybody or anything to make you feel guilty over sins that have been repented of. Not even yourself. The only one that could hold us accountable for our sin clearly tells us, I choose not to remember your sins. What a great thing for God to do for us. He chooses not to remember our sins. And I think one of the most cruel things any person could ever do to another believer is to cast doubts upon their God-given forgiveness. When Jesus 
was just a short while before the cross. He was in the temple teaching. He was there daily teaching in the temple. And the Jewish leaders, they brought a woman in and placed her in front of Jesus. And this woman had been caught in the act of adultery. Caught right in the act. So turn to John 8, and we'll read this passage. John 8, 3 through 12. I purposely do not put up the scriptures. You know why? I want you to find them and read them for yourself. <laughs> we have the technology to put them up. No, we're not going to do that. John 8, 3 through 12. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This woman caught in adultery, is being used by the scribes and Pharisees as a spectacle. They care not a bit in the world about her feelings, her life, anything. And it's interesting, to commit adultery, it takes two. Where's the man? They have selectively chosen not to bring the man forth. They only bring the woman. And they set this woman right in the midst of Jesus and he's doing his teaching. And they say to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And then they give their interpretation of the law which is not correct. Is not totally correct. And they quote Moses. And they say, Moses commanded us. Not true. Moses gave them an option. But they're not going to talk about the option. Moses basically gave them permission in the law to stone an adulterer. It was never a command that you had to stone the adulterer. But these religious leaders, 
They're testing Jesus. They're wanting to find something in Jesus that breaks their law so they can condemn him. And then they say, therefore, Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground with his finger. If you ever want to do an interesting little study, sometimes look at the times that the finger of God writes. We have the Ten Commandments, Nebuchadnezzar in the wall. We have Jesus stooping down. You don't have many times where the finger of God writes. It's a good little study. Anyway, sideline. However, Jesus continues to write on the dusty stones of the temple courtyard and he's acting as if he doesn't even hear these religious leaders. He's just giving them a deaf ear. They're not content. They press the issue. And Jesus then raises himself up and he declares, He who is among you without sin, let him cast the first stone. Then Jesus stoops down again and he begins to write on the ground one more time. And then in verse 9, note what verse 9 says. Then those who heard it. You hear a writing? No, you don't hear writing. The conviction of these religious leaders and their heart of their own sin is so real that it's audible to them. They hear their sin. Have you ever had a thought that was so profound it was like someone was speaking to you? That is what's going on here. Because from the oldest to the youngest, these religious leaders, these religious accusers, they begin to leave. Now there's a lot of speculation as to why they leave. My personal opinion, and that's all it is, is personal opinion, I believe Jesus is writing names and dates of the sins beginning with the oldest to the youngest as he writes them on the ground. They look down. They see what he's writing. They are convicted and they leave. Perhaps Jesus is even writing names of some of these guys that have sinned with this very woman that they have brought and put before Jesus. That would make you leave that crowd right now. And then Jesus raises himself up and he sees no one. And he asks the woman, he says, where are your accusers? And has no one condemned you? And she has a three-word reply. No one, Lord. Now, that doesn't sound like much of a confessional prayer to me, does it to you? That doesn't sound like she's repenting very much. (laughs) But remember, our Lord sees the heart. And He sees her heart. The accusers, they have left after hearing their sins. And this woman realizes Jesus is has just saved her life. They wanted her killed. He has just granted her salvation. 
Jesus has just forgiven her sins. Because we hear Jesus say, go and sin no more. And then he says, for neither do I condemn you. That is some of the greatest words any sinful person can ever hear. Especially from the lips of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Therefore, you are forgiven. And if you're forgiven, and if you accept the work of Jesus on the cross, never, ever let anyone condemn you. Why would I say that? Because we condemn ourselves at times. We carry the guilt of sin. Jesus wants us to be guilt-free. He wants us to forget our sins as He has chosen to forget our sins. And every now and again, this is brought home to me. And just recently, I had a man come to me and he said that he wanted to confess his sins. I said, why? He says, well, there's some people that think I should confess my sins of what I did before I was a Christian. I say, you don't have to confess them to me. Hey, we all sinned before we came to Christ. I say, you don't confess to me unless you just feel like you should because you have done nothing, you know, to me that I know of. And if you did it before you were a Christian, they're forgiven. They're forgiven. They're gone. They're past. And so he didn't confess his sins. And I was glad for him. Because he didn't need to. He had confessed them to the Lord. What a great God we have. Who chooses not to remember our sins. So don't beat yourself up. Forget your sins. They're forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that You love us so much to not only die for our sins, to forgive us of our sins, but You also choose not to remember our sins. And for that, we're grateful. Thank You so much, Lord. And thank You that we can live a guilt-free life before You. The only one in a position to condemn us doesn't condemn us. And we thank You for that. Thank you for your love towards us, Jesus. May we revel in our salvation. Thank you so much for providing such a great salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.